do this in a way that's not quite as exhausting, working on a whole 38 or so verses of scripture. Um, and some of you are like, Daniel chapter 7, wait, doesn't chapter 5 come after chapter 4? Uh, it does in your Bible, but we're actually going to be, we're moving through Daniel chronologically rather than as it is broken up. Daniel breaks up his book into stories of God's deliverance and God's goodness and the latter half is visions and, and dreams of, of God's plan for his people Israel. And, but we're, going to, we're walking through it chronologically. So um, just for, it'd be interesting if you want to kind of figure that out just as you're reading it during the week, you'll be able to see that chapter 5 comes at the end of King Belshazzar's reign, but yet chapter 7 comes at the first year of Belshazzar. Chapter 8 comes at the third year of Belshazzar. So, so we're going by those chronological indications of Daniel. I just figure as Americans we understand things better, a little bit more linear. You know, point A to point B. So anyways. Um, I have had the, the blessing of growing up on a hobby farm as a child. What I mean by a hobby farm is that um, we had a house and, and um, just a short distance from the house, it was about 23 acres that we had developed, um, fenced in and had it into set different fields and things like that with a great stream running through it. And uh, we raised just a few cows um, and chickens and 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 corn and things. It was it was a hobby. It made about as much money to pay the property taxes on it. Um, and it was a great experience for me growing up as a kid, as I mentioned. And um, one of the things that we always looked forward to was bringing in, not bringing in, more uh, stacking the hay bales that we purchased, and the fun that that would bring. We had a a kind of a cross between a pole barn and or a lean-to barn that that was covered on the top and back but sides in front of it was open and so we stacked hay bales in there and one of the things we always loved in in filling this back up with hay was me and my three brothers and my sister we would spend just a whole day or the whole weekend after that building hay forts and we developed these with kind of passageways going down to to second and third levels, you know, with small rooms and stuff in them and and windows and all sorts of things like that. It was so, it was so much fun. You know, it's like you're built working with just big blocks, you know. And um, my, I don't know what got us on this track this one day, but my brother apparently had become proficient with... Uh, taking a stick and and uh, and scooping up cow pie with it and flinging it and he came, became pretty accurate, my oldest brother. And um, of course, right there in front of the barn was where we'd throw hay out to the the cows. And so there was a lot of processed hay there in front of it, and so. At, on this particular day, having built the forts and everything, we had, we, I don't know what got us on this game, that my brother would be out in front of 
the hay barn and we would be hiding in different kind of crevices or windows and things and kind of sticking our heads out, kind of tempting him to throw it at us and ducking back down. And I'm sure, I don't know if the cows ever noticed as they were eating the hay. I but, um, so I can remember being so proud of this one hiding spot that I had that I was just like, I have got the best spot ever, you know, and I'm, and I'm ducked down in there and things, and I'm clean, and, and, um, and so at some point, I just had to tell it to the world that I had the best spot ever, and so I stuck my head up out of my spot, and I said, I've got the best spot, <laughs> and my ear just filled with processed hay. Well, Proverbs 16.8 tells us, pride goes before destruction <laughs> and a haughty spirit before a fall. Today's chapter from Daniel is about a man's fall from his high place of the greatest human ruler to have lived. Nebuchadnezzar falls seemingly as low as a person could fall. He later is restored to all of his majesty but not until he recognizes that the Most High, Yahweh God, Jehovah, reigns over all. As well, a very strong argument, I believe, can be made that he became a follower of this Yahweh God. So let's walk through Daniel here. As we see in the verse, verses 1 through 3, we see the king's decree, decree to praise the Lord. We've seen this before. But it's different now, I believe. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. You know, Daniel has, has chosen to include King Nebuchadnezzar's decree. We have a chapter here written by King Nebuchadnezzar, inserted into Daniel's book. Right off the bat, we can see that something has happened to the king. He has said that uh, in the past, he's declared that Daniel's God is the giver of wisdom, He's described Daniel's God as the one who's able to, that no one is able to deliver like him. We saw that in God's deliverance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But now he's writing as what seems like to be a changed man. He writes to all those who dwell in his empire. Notice that. All peoples, nations, and languages. These are the same, this is the same description of all the people that he gathered just in chapter 3 and called for them to worship the image that he had made. Uh, he's sending, if you can see on the map, he's sending here a formal declaration which is written like a spontaneous letter of praise across a vast region of the civilized world, all of what would be known as the civilized world at this time. This letter reaches from what we know today as Egypt all the way into Iran, of today from Syria all the way down into Saudi Arabia of today. We're going to hear Nebuchadnezzar talk about God as the most high a lot. I, I don't think that he's talking any longer 
about a God that he puts on his shelf, that he wants to put on his shelf and just take him down when he needs something from him. I think that we're witnessing the outcome of a changed life by God having shown up in a big way. Notice that Nebuchadnezzar is mentioning God's miraculous signs and wonders. But his conclusion is not that God is able to do some really awesome stuff. Rather than being like a God who needs something from his worshipers in order to improve his standing. I think of the movie, uh, um, the most recent uh, remake of Clash of the Titans, where, where the gods are becoming weak because their worshipers are no longer worshiping them anymore. That's the image that Babylonians had of God and of their gods. Nebuchadnezzar realizes that God is the most high and will always, is always going to reign. Jehovah's dom dominion or domination is never going to fade. In other words, he's saying, my kingdom is going to fade away, but God is always going to reign everything. We hear him say this for the first time. At the time of his writing this, Nebuchadnezzar is near to the end of his 43-year reign, although, of course, he doesn't know that. The year is around 562 B.C. Daniel has been in Babylon for 40 years. This would make Daniel between 55 and 60 years old now. The bulk of Nebuchadnezzar's writing here is going to be sharing an experience that he had that began eight years prior to his writing this. So it would have began in 570 B.C. He's writing it in 562 B.C. You're going to hear him make statements that sound like his pagan self. But this is because he's speaking here in a sort of literary presence, literary present sense in terms of his beliefs. In other words, he's talking in these statements from the perspective of what he knew at the time eight years earlier. So let's move into that as we look at king, the king's second dream as it's recorded in Daniel in verses 4 through 18. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, and they, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. So he's describing here a period, eight years earlier, when he had, a he, he had entered a time of contentment in his reign. His huge building projects were over, and we'll look at a few of these. There's peace in his kingdom. He's entered the twilight of his years as king. But he has an alarming dream, and he wants to know its interpretation. Interestingly, he goes back to the enchanters and the magicians and the Chaldeans that he, he, he went to in chapter 2. We can assume that this was his regular practice over these 35 years at this point of his reign. And he, he goes on in verse 8. He says, At last Daniel came in before me, he who is named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God. Notice here he's speaking, as I mentioned, in the literary present 
So he's describing, this is what I believed. It, it, it could be understood that this is what I believed at that time. And in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said this, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds of its branch, from its branches. The king describes here a watcher being holy or set apart from the rest of creation. The NIV uses the term messenger here. And that being because that is the function of an angelic being, of being a messenger. The ESV is closer here to the original Aramaic term, which is translated watcher or a watchman. This term has been used to refer to angels of, of Jehovah. We'll cover this more, we'll see this more in Daniel's interpretation of the king's dream. But into 50, verse 15 here but leave the stump this is, continues the statement of the angel but leave the stump of its, of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field let him be wet with the dew of heaven let his portion be with the beasts of the grass of the earth let his mind be changed from a man's and let his, a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the, all, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives, to it, gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. I want to isolate here this statement for a reason. We've talked before about how looking for repeated phrases in a text is a good way to know what is being tried, what is, what is the attempt, what's being attempted to get a, be gotten across here. The statement here is highlighting that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And that's what we'll see repeated the central idea that God is seeking to get across to Nebuchadnezzar is this statement. And I believe it's the idea that he wants to get across to us this morning too. And we'll obviously be coming back to that. But he says, verse 18, This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all of the wisdom of men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able... For the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Again, he's speaking from what he knew at that time. 
So it moves us into the interpretation through Daniel in verses 19 through 27. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered him. Now notice there's something peculiar here. Um, not sure the reason why for it, but he switches from first person, I, to third person, saying, the king. He does this for a portion of the chapter, but he says, The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Interestingly, as I mentioned, switches from first person to third person. But interestingly here, we might think of Daniel as being glad that the interpretation is not good for this king. I mean, since Daniel has lived in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar has leveled Jerusalem, including the temple, torn down its walls. He's deported, this was after he deported all of its treasures, deported even more of its wise people and, and its middle class, and he has left it leveled. But Daniel is living obedient to the Lord and specifically to something that he commanded through the prophet Jeremiah as the Lord was prophesying of the deportation of his people to Babylon. And he writes this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Daniel was living obediently to this. He's genuinely broken hearted for King Nebuchadnezzar. He says the dream you saw continue in verse 20. The dream you saw, which grew, tree you saw, thank you. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and fruit abundant, and which was fruit for all, under which beasts of the fields found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the air and birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion and the, to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, and here's where Daniel is describing these watchers as bringing a message from God. Because the king saw a watcher, the, a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass. Sorry, I didn't move you forward there. In the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him and we'll see that seven periods are seven years. He says, because you saw a watcher, this is their interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. 
You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you, meaning it will be given back to you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. There's no need for me to explain Daniel's interpretation here. We're going to actually see it take place in the chapter here. But notice that Daniel takes the opportunity to plead with the king to turn from his sins. He was recommending how Nebuchadnezzar could overt the consequences of his heart of pride and his sinful lifestyle as the king. Babylon was known to have codified the first of uh, organized written laws known as the Hammurabi Code. But here we find Daniel one of God's people calling for Babylon's king to live under God's moral law. And we move forward in our chapter to one year later as we see the fulfillment of the king's dream. It says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is this not the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? He's walking on the roof of his palace and it may be that he took Daniel's advice at first and now 12 months later it kind of it waned and, and, and his, the change in his life went away as all works of the flesh do. He looks over the city of Babylon. Now, now here, he, I'll have a few pictures of the city of Babylon here. The historian Herodotus, Herodotus wrote of Babylon as being like no other city the world has ever seen. And this being about um, 150 years after Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Archaeology has also shown the size of Babylon. Its outer walls stretch 12 miles around the city, enclosing in a nine-square-mile area. This would be the size of Crawfordsville's city limits. If you were to look at it as being from, say, from just across Sugar Creek at the CELP building, all the way down to Home Depot from north to south and the same size from east to west would be the size of Babylon. Now imagine, if you will, a wall going around that whole area and that wall being big enough to put a three-lane road on top of it is how thick this wall was. Herodotus described that a chariot with four horses could do a U-turn on top of this wall and head in the opposite direction. And just inside that wall would be another wall just as impenetrable as the first. A double wall construction. And Babylonian troops then would be able to move between those two walls 
in defense of the city. Uh, as you can see here in this uh, depiction, um, here's the same ziggurat that was on the prior one. The river Euphrates ran through the city of Babylon, so it was built on both sides. Um, Nebuchadnezzar actually extended the city of Babylon in this section here to the other side of the river Euphrates. But the river was also diverted around the city to create a moat around the entire city there. This is an artist's rendering of a view from inside the city of Babylon, uh, including its great bridge that spanned the river Euphrates at the, at the center of the city. Now, Nebuchadnezzar might have also been looking over his famous hanging gardens, one of the seven wonders of the world, which he, he had built for one of his brides, who was a princess from Media, and she was accustomed to lush, mountainous terrain, but had been brought here to Babylon, which sat in the middle of dry, flat plains. And so what he had built was a man-made mountain constructed from arches underneath it, and it was covered with lush gardens and trees. And as a part of this, he had had designed for it a water pumping system from the river Euphrates that would take water up to the top of the mountain constantly and it would run it through the gardens feeding all of the lush countryside, if you will, that he had built um, as it trickled down through the gardens, this being the hanging gardens of Babylon. Babylon was an amazing place even by today's standards. And so it says here, as he's sitting, notice his statement, Is this not the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? And it says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, he had not even finished his statement. There fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. So this is the words of this watcher from his dream. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. It says immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as an eagle's feathers and his nails were like the bird's claws. Think of what happens when a deer or some animal gets caught in an office building. You know, many of us have seen like these videos online of that people like film this deer just tearing up the place and injuring itself, trying to get out. From that point forward, Nebuchadnezzar flees humanity like a scared animal. He ate grass and spent every moment outside. Many have said that Nebuchadnezzar developed a mental illness that could, would be described as, I'm going to butcher these, boanthropy, boanthropy, or lycanthropy. So there you have. The person acts as if they are an animal even eating what an animal eats, even though their body doesn't have the enzymes to process the food. There's people in institutions today with this condition. 
So we see in verses 34 through 37, it says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. At the end of the days, meaning at the end of the seven years, I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And he continues, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. That would be everywhere. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Recall from chapter 2 that the king dreamed of a stone that would destroy the statue of his dream that represented five empires. And that stone would grow and take over the whole earth. Now Daniel informed the king of this stone in interpreting the dream, but that the king of the God of heaven, this is what Daniel said, will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. But the king didn't say in response to this in chapter 2, tell me about this eternal kingdom that your God is going to set up. No, he responded in chapter 2, truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. In other words, to say, I'll give him that. Here in chapter 4, I think he gets it. He agrees with the truth that God's dominion, Jehovah Yahweh, his dominion is eternal. He agrees with the truth that God's will is irresistible, saying he does according to his will in heaven and on earth. The true God of the universe is not accountable to anyone Nebuchadnezzar's old man-centered mentality would have thought God was able to be bought with worship. He's come to re realize that Jehovah is nothing like this. And he continues, At the same time, my reasoning returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the king the, and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. We see again, as was predicted, he's restored to his reign. In fact, he's given more greatness than he had before. Kind of recall the story of Job at this point. Verse 37 is most telling to me of King Nebuchadnezzar's spiritual condition at this point. Where he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. The, the terms here for praise and honor indicate continual action. In other words, it was now a habitual practice of Nebuchadnezzar. He has, he has adopted worshiping and honoring and glorifying the Most High. He's realized that and, and he realizes that that's what he's doing now by writing this decree to all of the civilized world. I believe that this is his testimony. And even at the expense of describing himself as having acted and thought that he was an animal at the time. 
I mean, look at what he risked by putting this story out to the civilized world. We'll actually see in chapter 5 that the testimony continues in his wife as she speaks to his grandson, Belshazzar, recalling, don't you realize what God did to your grandfather and what it was for? And isn't this what the angel would say would happen in verse 17? To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and, he will and sets it over what? The lowliest of men. He's willing to describe himself as having reached the point of being the lowliest of men to his entire empire to glorify God with that. This is his testimony. So what is Daniel 4 for harvest? I believe Daniel 4 tells us that God rules the earth, humbling the proud and showing grace to the humble. God rules your workplace. God rules your school. God rules your home. And he will humble the proud and give grace to the humble. The first eternal principle that we draw out here is that pride is dangerous. Pride is dangerous. Recall that? Did you catch in Nebuchadnezzar's question there, his statement? Is this not the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Now, I, I catch myself doing this a lot. You know, I haven't built Babylon by any means, but I've remodeled a couple kitchens, put in some can lights, you know, done some bathroom work. And, you know, sometimes when it's dark, especially when I kind of get it all buttoned up, I'll just kind of like step over, turn the light on, just kind of look over it, turn the light off, come back, turn the light on. I'm being honest. <laughs> But here, it's I, my mighty power, my majesty. It's one thing to value something that one has, done, has been accomplished in our lives, something that we've done. It's natural and good to be grateful for the natural abilities that we have or the skills that we have developed. Pride is something that attributes who we are or what we are to oneself. It causes us to be blind for our need, blind to our need for God's grace in our lives. We then expect more from others and more from God because we think, I only deserve it. I mean, do you know who I am? What I have done? That's what dangerous pride does. We see his statement here embodies the pride of his heart. Everything is attributed to him. And he considers nothing that he has as being from the hand of God. So what does God do? He removes from him the soundness of his mind. The most basic blessing that he's given. Also, he's driven from the very thing that he is proud of. The civilization of Babylon. I think of a, a, a joke I heard once. I'm really afraid I've told this before. But um, 
where a naturalistic scientist being a naturalistic scientist being one that does not attribute anything that he observes to the supernatural. It's only attributed to naturalism. Or um, a naturalistic scientist says to God, um, he says to God, I can create human life. I have found a way to do it. And God says, well, this is interesting. I'd like to see this. And he says, okay, no problem. All I need is a is a beaker and a vacuum here and the right, just the right amount of dirt. And God says, whoa, 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 whoa. Get your own dirt. Get your own dirt. Just as a naturalist cannot start with nothing as God did, God shows Nebuchadnezzar what it is like to truly start without the simplest of God's blessings in his life. You know, the intention of this passage is not to make us afraid of being prideful because God might make us insane. The point is to see how destructive pride is to our own understanding of our need for God's grace. This should be a reminder to us of James 4, where we see, well, actually, this is just verse 6, but it says, He gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You might recall here that when we looked at James 4 together, that the idea, the statement here, when it says God opposes the proud, it says God lines his armies up against the proud. Not a place that I want to be. Why? Because I know who God is, and I want more of him in my life. I don't want him to shut me out from who he is. His fellowship is precious to me. I don't lose my relationship with him. I don't, I don't lose a bit of his love and his grace by having a prideful heart. But I can tell you, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you don't want him lined up against you. Believe me. The proud also miss God's grace. God's grace to change comes to the humble. This might be the grace to come to Christ as our Savior or to grow in Christ as our Savior. Both come through the humbling process of realizing our prideful sin and realizing that it, what it robs from us. I love these verses in James, but obviously I don't have time to preach them again. I, I've preached on them over, like, there's three sermons on them in, on the website if you want to look those up from James 4, but... There's so much of being close with our Creator that we lose by the blindedness of our foolish pride. Nebuchadnezzar could have been left with this as his only testimony. This is the modern-day city of Babylon. Instead, he's proclaiming his testimony of how God has changed him permanently. These are the, what's left of the hanging gardens one of the seven wonders of the world. What's dangerous about pride is that he, this could have been left with as his only wonder. Instead, we have to stop and wonder at God's loving grace that changed his heart. And Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, wonders about this for eternity. Second principle we draw from this is that humility is by God's grace. 
Nebuchadnezzar said, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. This is a beautiful picture of repentance. The order of what happens here is sort of a mystery. Do you notice this? It says, at the end of the days, or at the end of the seven years that had been proclaimed, he lifts his eyes to heaven, and God gave back to him the reasoning that he removed from him. At that point, the result is that he blesses the Most High and worships him. And he was told his reasoning would not return to him, his kingdom would not return to him, until he blessed the Most High. But yet it was planned exactly how long it would be. What did God graciously do according to his timetable? Cause Nebuchadnezzar's reason to return to him. This is not a matter of a man getting sick of living as an animal. That's the problem with insanity. A person doesn't know they're insane. As a gift of God's grace, God broke through his craziness and showed him his glory. As a result, he saw who God is, and he worshipped. Let's look at this idea from a, a very well-known New Testament passage. Roman, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, we have a tendency to think as we look at these verses that because the it, first, because the this is singular and the it is singular, it must be pointing to just one thing. Every pro pronoun needs an antecedent. There's your English lesson. And so we assume that the grace that we have is not of our own doing. It is a gift of God, but it is in response to our faith is what we assume in these verses. I want to tell you that grammatically, you can open up a Greek textbook if you want and see this, grammatically the construction of these verses teaches us something different than this. Both the grace, both the grace that we are saved by and the faith that we are saved through are referred to as being a gift of God and not a result of ourselves. It's not that I have faith and so God gives me his grace. This verse is teaching that grace and faith is a gift of God and not a result of ourselves. So that for what reason? Same as Nebuchadnezzar. That we may not boast. That we may not boast. It's only by God's grace that we have faith. In the same sense of the awe and gratefulness that we should have about the very faith that we hold on to for Christ. Now, I want to make another application here, all right? Here is Nebuchadnezzar in the twilight of his life. I don't know about you, but I was yelling at the TV last night, okay? The great Peyton Manning has 30 seconds and two timeouts left to go 40 or 50 yards to get within field goal range 
and they've won the game. So here with 30 seconds left, tie ball game, they choose to go into overtime instead of using the time. Uh, those of you who are in the twilight of your life, don't make that mistake. Notice the change that came to Nebuchadnezzar's life and the influence that he had. What happens as you get older? You have kids. You have grandkids. You have great-grandkids. Make use. Pray for God's grace to do wonders in your life, in the twilight even. And even you could write a letter to those you have influence over. Third principle here is that God is in total control. Throughout the first four chapters of Daniel, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is Yahweh's tool. In chapter 1, we're, we're told that God gave Jerusalem into his hands. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar can only understand the very dream of his mind when God reveals it to Daniel. God gave Daniel the interpretation. Chapter 3, he cannot even singe a hair on the head of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because God is protecting them. God's total control is certainly what chapter 4 is communicating. As we see similar statements repeated, this is what the children of Israel needed to hear as they were deported to the nation of Babylon. This is what the nations needed to know. It should, have, it should end their quest to collect gods like chess pieces to, in order to use to control their world with. We see this throughout our passage. The angel in the dream explains the purpose of the king's humiliation. He says, to the end that all the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. In Daniel's interpretation, he informs the king that he will eat grass for seven years. Until when? Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The king's final testimony, when God returns his, his reason to him, says all the inhabitants of the earth are accountable, accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The king is pointing here to the fact that there is no one that God needs anything from. God is at work according to his eternal plan of redemption. No one can say, what have you done? Requiring God to give an account. Isaiah accuses men of turning life on its head when they think that God owes them some sort of explanation as he writes, oh, I'm sorry, here we go. As he writes in Isaiah 29, to youth, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing may should say to its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Like, like the little clay pots would say to the person that made it, he didn't make me. Or say to the others, he doesn't know what he's talking about. The idea that we think that we have a bone to pick with God when things don't go right with us is laughable. 
And if you'll read Psalm 2, it says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. Sadly, we see this happen in the church as beliefs circulate that are unbiblical. Many times there are ideas that make us feel good about who we are at the sacrifice of God's character. There are teachings that God wants you to be happy according to however you define it. I've heard people rationalize sin to others, extramarital affairs even, and saying, well, if it makes you happy. Some teach that your best life is available now according to your definition. And all you have to do is learn how to get God to work for you. That's no different than Nebuchadnezzar's polytheistic theology. And some of these teachers, if you get to the root of it, that's what you'll find, is polytheism. There are some theologies that go so far as to teach that God would never do anything to affect a person's choice. Their logical conclusion, then, is that God doesn't even know the future because man hasn't made his choices yet. Ridiculous. Completely unbiblical. I'm going to be asking uh, Leanne in a moment here to come and sing a song that speaks to how we can treat God like he's so small. The song, that it's, it reminds us how we can tend to recreate him into what we want him to be. We want him to be small sometimes. I'd like to read you the lyrics, and Leanne and I think the worship team um, will be joining her at some point um, as she comes up. The lyrics speak to different ways that we do to make images, like a cardboard cutout, or maybe we fashion an image with a mold. It says, cardboard cutouts on the floor. People wish that you were more like what they wanted you to be. Eventually, they won't have much of you at all in their theology. The walls are closing in on you, but you cannot be contained. Broken moldings all around, broken people hit the ground when they discover that you're not here for our benefit. You love in spite of us. You use the least of us to prove the strong aren't really strong at all. And here's the chorus.
But I could never fathom you I 